Welcome back to another episode of Statement Fees. So today we have a guest, Anna Gray, who is one of the co-founders of Object Limited, a vintage reselling platform. So we will be talking about some topics within the realm of vintage wear and how it has risen to popularity recently. But first, let's start with current events. Yeah, so our very first current event is that Muslim model Halima Aden is stepping back from fashion and quitting runway shows entirely after feeling pressure to compromise her religious beliefs, she announced earlier this week around the 26th of November. Our other current event is the announcement of the collaboration between UGG and Telfar. Very cool bags with Sherling and the iconic Telfar logo. The advertising is really cool. It has a little pup. Also, Scotland has become the first country to allow free and universal access to menstrual products, including tampons and pads in public facilities, a landmark victory for the global movement against period poverty. Recently, the nominations for the 63rd Annual Grammy Award Awards came out, and according to High Cinebiety Music this year, many institutions are increasingly becoming aware of Black Lives Matter movement, and the Grammys made some changes in their awards categories, and they renamed their outdated urban category. However, the High Cinebiety writer underlines the fact that not much has actually changed because dropping the unofficial N-word from an award category was just another classic case of empty virtue signaling. All right. And before we get to our conversation with Anna, we're going to preface the conversation with some articles that we found that we thought were especially pertinent to our conversation. One that we discussed with Anna is called Sweatpants Forever. And you can find that at the New York Times. It's called Sweatpants Forever, How the Fashion Industry Collapsed. And it's by Irina Alexander. And it was published on August 6, 2020. In the article, it discusses how COVID has impacted the fashion industry, including deeply affecting a lot of larger brands like J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, Brooks Brothers, and JCPenney, all of which filed for bankruptcy during the pandemic, and how it's especially impacting small businesses. However, businesses in the loungewear space, like sweatpants, have been doing well. Yes, I think one of the changes that I really underlined was the impact on large fashion brands. For example, Diane von Furstenberg used to have like a couple hundred stores and now it's down to 19 and I think even less so. And same with Marc Jacobs, like used to have a ton of stores and now only has four. I guess that just goes to show that we are moving from physical retail spaces to more so online. Right. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that Anna later mentions how she found it unique that larger, she says, fashion proper brands are speaking out about issues within fashion. Again, this article was brought to us by Anna Gray, who we are interviewing today. She is the co-founder and creative director of Object Limited, a vintage wear reselling platform. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Yes, happy to have you. Yes. So can you please explain a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, I've been working in fashion for a long time, 11 years from when I was like 18 to 27. That's not 11 years, but the math works out. Um, (laughs) I started as a model and then I was in college in the city and I was just like doing uh, all of the random odd jobs that I could find that included 
PR and styling and merchandising and normal retail sales and event production, et cetera. So I was wearing all these different hats, but the end goal of all of these jobs was basically to sell more new clothes. <laughs> and I eventually got burned out and started questioning the processes that we sort of were just constantly keeping alive without questioning. And uh, a, it was a, a cross-country road trip with a friend where we took two weeks to go from upstate New York all the way to Arizona and stopped at every antique shop that we wanted that to that tickled our fancy. And um, that really opened our eyes to how much supply was available in the world of secondhand and vintage and antiques. And from there, it sort of became the question of like, oh, well, how do we get this into the hands of people that want it? Uh, why isn't more of this in an accessible place, i.e. the internet? Um, and from there, Object Limited was born. <laughs> the nutshell version. <laughs> that is awesome. So how do you see it differing from Depop and Etsy? It's very similar to Depop. So there are two ways to do a resale marketplace. There's the managed marketplace, like the real real, where they take your things for you and uh, shoot them and sell them. And then there's peer to peer, which Etsy, Depop and Object Limited all are. Um, what makes Object different is the curated aspect. Uh, so, and it's also, for now, like strictly fashion and on top of that, mostly women's fashion. So it's for a very specific demographic of customer, um, which is, it's fun that it's small and feels like a really warm, friendly, accessible community. But obviously the plans in the long run are to incorporate more home goods, more menswear. And then once the logistics are figured out, like furniture and things like that. So right now the difference between the, the differentiator between object and the Etsy and Depops of the world is the curation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know, so it started off with you curating everything, you and your co-founder curating everything on the site itself. And also it was a community-based kind of in-person event. Could you speak a yeah, little more so about that? It started as, so my co-founder, Rod Taylor, is the techie guy um, who works his magic in a way that I don't understand <laughs> and not being a developer. And uh, it started, Object started as a very small vintage pop-up shop where I would go bring a couple racks to my friend's nicer apartment and invite friends over to shop and we would like drink wine and eat cookies and hang out. And it wasn't a scenario in which you felt pressured to buy anything, but you know, conversations about the circular economy were encouraged and like, you know, people want to know the history behind the things that they're buying, especially in the world of vintage. Mm -hmm. So from there it grew into friends being like oh I want to participate in the next one like can I bring a rack of clothing and I'm like sure and so it became this ever-growing amoeba <laughs> that turned into the question of how do we put tech behind this and like really make it a viable scalable business venture. Mm -hmm. So at what point or what major factor made you decide to move to an online or app-based platform? Um, COVID. 
I mean, we our app in its current iteration has been around since August last year. So we were we had an online presence and we're focused on building out our e-com since before August of last year. Like all of last year was figuring out what it was going to look like and how like how the product was going to be used and, and what our vendors need and what our customers needed to like make the best app possible. So people were happy to shop and sell on it. It was never, we were always going to, we call our multi-vendor pop-ups vintage bazaars and we were never planning on stopping those. Even if e-com became this like huge giant machine, like the plan was to have, and it's still in the works, but you know, with the, our inability to gather, it makes it more difficult. The, community aspect of our in-person events is really important to the company and me and all of us as individuals. Um, so we were just trying to figure out how to scale that also alongside the e-com, whether it was like a TEDx model where there could be simultaneous bazaars going on, or we have like representatives in different cities doing them at the same time with their local vendors. Um, so that on the ground scenario, was never going to stop. It just had to because of COVID. So we sort of moved them to social, which has been doing pretty well, actually. I know there was the component Object Studios. So do you still plan on running that? Object Studio was an experiment. It was our longest running bazaar. My friend Flynn was out of town and he has a restaurant on Forsyth, which is very well decorated. And so he let me rent it from him while he was in Europe. And I turned it into a rotating pop-up shop where mm -hmm. we could have different vendors come depending on what dates and people could pick things up they bought it on the app that kind of thing um it was really fun i mean i think that i'm not interested in having a vintage store i don't i think that's an, a wonderful beautiful enterprise that doesn't scale in the way that I'm interested in. How do you go about picking the different vintage vendors for Object Limited? Uh, in the beginning, it was like cold outreach. Mm -hmm. um, I was like going to stores and being like, hey, do you want to sell on this app? <laughs> um, and then I was cold emailing people and then I was talking to vendors that I already knew because they were friends. Um, or I was talking to friends that I knew wanted to clean out their closets. Uh, and then from there, it sort of started snowballing on its own. In the beginning, we were, you had to apply to be a vendor. That was like a sort of sneaky tactic to seem exclusive, mm -hmm. uh, but also just because we didn't have the bandwidth to take anyone on in <laughs> volume. Uh, and then we took down that. Right. So because pop-ups aren't as possible these days, what do you think technology's role is in the fashion industry and specifically for Object Limited? And how do you think COVID impacted that? Um, well, e-com across the board is skyrocketing. Our sales are skyrocketing. I think everyone is more aware of how detrimental fashion is on the environment. And so, you know, you can't turn off your consumer switch, which has been drilled into us since day one. Um, but you can make better conscientious choices about where you're spending your money. The, before COVID, they were predicting the resale industry would be worth, I think it was like $30 billion in the next five years. And already they're predicting it to be twice as much at $64 billion by 2025. So it's a rapidly growing industry. And I think fashion world, fashion proper, as I like to call it, which is 
making new clothes, whether mm -hmm. or not they're sustainable or not, um, we'll start paying attention to those numbers. And hopefully technology meets it where it needs to be met. Mm -hmm. Right. And then on the same vein as COVID impacting fashion, aside from sustainability, I know you mentioned the article Sweatpants Forever. What, what are your thoughts on this article and its relevance? to COVID and just in general sustainability as well because I know it talks a lot about even Anna Winter comments on the toxicity of fashion speed and such. I think we're just looking at the article really makes clear that we're looking at the wrong margins or numbers when it comes to making decisions about what industries to keep going in the same way that they've been going forever and it and what really struck me about that article was that there was an admittance from this top tier collection of fashion proper brains who are very much leading the industry in whatever direction they decide makes the most sense mm -hmm. and none of them were able to articulate solutions to how the industry can change to better mitigate its environmental impact. But there are a lot of things that I think can be done to help the fashion industry keep all the jobs alive, make the consumer happy, keep the people at the top happy, and still manage to make smarter decisions about materiality, production lines, supply chains, etc. What do you think will be, or I guess in your opinion, what do you think will be the major instigator for these larger fashion houses or what you would call a proper fashion uh, to make these changes. The consumer, your wallet has activism power in it. Where you spend your money is extremely important. If you aren't buying fast fashion, if everyone's else buying H&M clothing, then H&M will stop making clothing. Mm -hmm. They're only as, right. only as successful as the dollars that they're bringing in. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've discussed that a lot in our podcast and I think, also, Gen Z, is, as they become an increasing consumer base, as a consumer base that looks for ethical consumption and transparency, um, I think it will hopefully head in that direction. So with that, how do you think social media has kind of altered this Gen Z agenda for sustainability and helped you grow your business as well. People will get called out if they're not doing the right thing. And if Gen Z, who's doing a great job of this from what I can tell and what I've observed in the back end of Object Limited is like they will hold themselves and each other accountable to making the right decisions. And hopefully that continues in like a place of kind education and not like scary bullying so i think in that way and social media also on the other end like uh, what i was saying earlier about uh it being so easy to grow a business into something really successful very quickly now like instagram fully helps you find great vintage vendors great retailers of in any category across the spectrum of aesthetics and um lets people make sales in a way that they you know they're not buying google ads anymore yeah yeah learning I, seo so it's a little antiquated at this point <laughs> no i've definitely found a lot of vintage vendors through instagram and recently on our past episode we talked about how it's interesting instagram's update where it's mostly or it definitely promotes what instagram's priority is at this point which is kind of opening it up to 
a marketplace. You want to make money. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I think one of the first times I saw Object Limited was on social media. And I think it was one of the, like an Instagram video where you were dressing different outfits or whatever it may be. Right. I should talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> we have a TV show called How to Wear Stuff. It's on Instagram. That's been really helpful for us because I think maybe to the newbie, vintage can be really intimidating. I've been shopping vintage since I was like five years old because my mom loves shopping vintage. My grandma loves shopping vintage. And like then when I became a teenager and was like making my $10 an hour, I was, could only afford to buy vintage um, if I wanted to experiment with my wardrobe. So the intimidating factor of vintage I un or secondhand I understand because uh, a question I get a lot is like oh how do you make it not look costumey or how do you make it look more modern and so in response to this question that I was getting a lot I was like well maybe we just make this tv show because clearly the what comes innately to me or is a, a practice that I've cultivated over all the time that I've been interested in and then worked in the fashion industry is like putting outfits together. Right. So no. do you ever alter the pieces? Because I, I've seen a lot of blogs where they talk about a similar thing where vintage is hard to style and can be intimidating, but then they end up showing how to alter it. So do you do that as well? So that's interesting. There's something that I like to consider when I'm buying secondhand. Um, if I'm in thrift stores like Goodwill or Salvation Army and I'm buying oversized pieces, I don't alter them because I know I'll put them back into the ecosystem. The circular economy is where you buy something and you're like, wow, this is great. I love it. And then you have it for a little while and then you're like, no, don't really wear it. It's been sitting in my closet for six months. Uh, and instead of throwing it away, you can donate it or you can give it to a friend or you can sell it on, I don't know, object limited perhaps. Um, <laughs> and it just keeps things in the cycle. And it's like a great way to not feel guilty about your purchases because you know that you're going to give them another life in other hands again. For things like jeans, yes, I'll take it in. Um, but it, I mean, if it's close enough to my own size, then I don't mind altering. So to speak more about the tech side and just developing the app and everything, I was going through it today and how, how did you kind of figure out which things that you wanted to keep or prioritize for the interface and how user-friendly it is, or even the look of the app cover art? The bare bones wireframes were like, this is what, as a vintage seller and a vintage buyer myself and also Maggie Lanham on our team is also a vintage seller buyer. So together we were able to determine what tools we needed to make the selling experience great. And then as customers, we were able to determine what tools we needed to make the buying experience great. But if someone handed me $50,000 to spend on a design team, none of us are designers, by the way then I think it would look a little bit different, um, but it works perfectly well for what we needed to do. What do you think is the most valuable experience, learning experience while developing Object Limited? Well, okay. Recently I was like, do you, I was talking to my friend David and I was like, do you think I should go to grad school for business? And he was like, everything you could possibly learn in grad school, you just got a crash course in by working on this company for two and a half years. Um, you know, for example, 
I thought this was a brilliant idea and we <laughs> and so did Rocky and he we were and he developed this um magic eight ball where it will basically the app would send you a notification weekly that was like we think you would like all these 10 things based on everything that you liked this week like that makes that sounds like it would be a great feature didn't work no one cared <laughs> and it for a week and no one was interested and we're like okay it's fine kill it so what you see now is you know the the end result of a lot of those kinds of experiments so to go back to your kind of early career when you were younger was this what you wanted to do and then with that what did you study and intend on studying did you go to college i went to college i moved to new york from virginia eight my parents are like get out of the house goodbye um the reason i went to new school i went to eugene lang to study literature american contemporary literature i did not care about college i fucking hated school i was terrible in high school i was a horrible rambunctious brat with an authority problem and i was like i don't care where i go i just want to be in new york the only way i can get to new york is if i get into college i moved to new york because i wanted to be cool and, and famous basically is there like a specific pathway that you wanted to take because i know you mentioned you started modeling early on so did you always want to work in fashion or were you just kind of seeing i always wanted to work in fashion because i love clothes uh, I love adornment. I love the communicative aspect of adornment. The, I was talking to my analyst today, <laughs> and uh, I was like, do you think I have an entrepreneurial brain? And he was like, you definitely have an entrepreneurial brain. Like, that's why you have such problems with authority and the status quo and, like, are always trying to do things in a, as weird a way as possible. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. He's like, what? It kind of means you're not afraid of failure? And I was like, no, I'm not afraid of failure. <laughs> I would describe Catherine the same way. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. I mean, my parent. I was like a first generation American. Neither of my parents were born here. I always grew up being like the weirdo kid who never quite fit in. And I was like, at some point, instead of being bummed about it, was like, this, I could use this to my benefit. Maybe Catherine the same way, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I, I relate a lot to your experiences because I always wanted to be in New York and modeled at a young age because I grew up in LA. So I think like the yearn to be a part of like fame and blah, blah, blah was definitely there. And then, but I went to Wellesley because I wanted to like pursue academia and like be taken seriously. Um, and then in June, I started my own business. It's like a Gen Z oriented marketing and management consultancy. But I, and then I started a full-time job um, last month and I, I feel similarly, um, I guess, as, as you were saying, because I, I don't like the status quo or like normalcy. It just feels like really medio mediocre to me. I, I just feel like I'm being lumped into mediocrity when I do a nine to five situation and it's not busy and there's not like crises happening. I don't know. I, I like the drama. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even today, me and Catherine were just exchanging text messages about different things. And we both like have full-time jobs, do the podcast, and also have like other projects going on. So it's always like, I feel like we like to have that, <laughs> I guess, change and, you know, no day is the same. Yeah. 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 Thriving in the chaos is an important 
important skill set, I think, and maybe probably pretty rare. And I think it's what is often the catalyst for change is people who are like, but why do we keep doing the same thing over and over again? For yeah. sure. Yeah, um, so what were your different jobs? Modeling, freelance writer, I made no money. Uh, <laughs> PR, didn't do that one for very long because I fucking hate it. Event production, I was consulting for the Frankie shop for a while. I really liked that job because I love Gael, but then I stopped working with new clothes. Um, and I was like throwing fun little events for her and other brands. Uh, what else were they doing? I was styling for a minute, not very long, too much heavy lifting. Uh, <laughs> I worked in, actually worked in, I was an executive assistant for a media consultant for a minute. That was fun. I learned a lot about how to write a convincing email um, and like juggle a lot of people's calendars. I, I worked at Home Polish. I was in interior design for a year and a half. That was my first foray into startup world. I, I had a magazine <laughs> called Girls I Know with my friend Jen Steele. That was really fun. We had that for two years. Um, where we interviewed, we were pretty ahead of our time. We were interviewing women about their different definitions of success and happiness. I think that's it. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, where do you see Object Limited going in the future? I would like it to be, I would like all the vendors to have their own how to wear stuff. I would like everyone in the world to only buy secondhand and understand that the supply chain for secondhand is readily available, even if you're making new things out of old things. Um, and I hope that object, you know, gets, we, we managed to foray into other categories of furniture, cars, whatever, so that right, right. It's a stop shop for you to aesthetically improve your life with utilitarian and beautiful objects. So then if you had to pick one statement piece in your wardrobe, what would it be? Probably a coat. I have this really good camel long Max Mara overcoat that I like a lot. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on. Um, it was great to hear your story and just understand better sustainability and especially talk to people that are passionate about it. Yeah, thanks yes, for definitely. having me on. Yes, and I'm excited to see what Object Limited is going to look like in the future. Yes, thank you so much to Anna for being on. After our conversation, Sita and I were looking into other articles on vintage wear and how people style them, how different groups react to vintage reselling, and we found this really interesting article by Eliza Huber of Refinery29, and it's called Why is Shopping for Plus Size Vintage So Hard? It was published in September 2020. But it discusses how for plus size women, a lot of vintage shopping can be difficult because especially because recently a lot of trends have been shifting towards oversized things. So like oversized jeans, oversized jean jackets, I think are really trending right now. And people who aren't plus size are shopping plus size as a result. And in general, it's just hard to find plus size vintage clothing. So I think then they are almost forced to resort to fast fashion since brands like Fashion Nova are really catered towards plus size consumers. Like even if you think about vintage clothing and how it's sourced, like a lot of vintage clothes from Europe, for example, are all catered towards really petite women because that's how it traditionally was. Like women were 
supposed to have this specific body type so I feel like because of beauty standards in the past like you're you're gonna tend to find fashion and that, that caters towards that as well right I also think like when you think about vintage wear I think people say that the size doesn't matter it almost like gives like this one size for all very Brandy Melville because you're right. even if it's a certain size they never say the size they're just like like exactly what yeah. you're saying oversized or it's just this or that I think only pants have specific sizing Right. And I think a part of it is because with vintage wear and depending on where it's being sourced, like something could be one size, but then could be tailored towards the smaller size or whatever it may be. And I would like to highlight at least one plus size vintage store, which is based in Brooklyn named Barry's. Check it out. It is run by Emma Zach. And she is actually someone who said something quite notable in the article. Plus size vintage, like all of plus size fashion, is treated as an afterthought despite it being one of the fastest growing markets. And until plus size people are treated with the same consideration as straight size people, the cycle will repeat. There will continue to be a lack of plus size vintage items in traditional vintage stores. And I think that's so true. Right. Like, I think people may think vintage wear is like so great and so sustainable, but but obviously there are issues within the realm of vintage wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So something to keep in mind of as you are shopping in the future, if anyone is on Depop or Poshmark, don't just uh, advertise it as oversized. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that's all for now, folks. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Hey.